This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people about their journeys. And today my guest is an actor and writer. He also owns and runs a restaurant. Mitchell Anderson is the guest. He's coming to Los Angeles with his show, You Better Call Your Mother. It's going to be at Highways Performance Space on October 27th and 28th. And you can learn about that at highwaysperformance.org. I met Mitchell back in the 90s, and he came out at the Glad Media Awards in 1996. I remember it was a big deal. Uh, he was on Party of Five at the time, and he was sort of one of the first leading man types to come out of the closet, if not the first. And it was a very exciting time, and I remember he was in my friend PJ Castellaneta's movie, Relax, It's Just Sex, not long after that. And then he ended up moving to Atlanta, opening a restaurant, he got married, and I just wanted to hear all about his journey because it was a big deal when he came out. I remember that, and I've always liked him in our interactions, so I was really happy to reconnect with him. Here's a little disclaimer. I <laughs> I get a little emotional in this interview. I um, it, it happened on my birthday, and I think I was feeling reflective, and there was something about the themes of his show about... First of all, there's dad stuff in there, and I've been having dad stuff lately. I didn't have it for 40 years, and then suddenly I have dad stuff. Um, And and these ideas of, like, finding your place in the world, like where you need to be, or feeling that that place is precarious, I related to that a lot. Um, I also related to, like, the 90s, I think for both of us, we're a similar age, and there was a lot of excitement going on, a lot of promise, and I'm at a place now where I'm reevaluating my career. And by that, I mean, I'm not working enough. I'm like, fuck, I'm there again, folks. Yeah. Settle in. Um, so anyway, I was a little bit raw, but I was also very touched by his story and, uh, and his show. So I decided going in, I said, if I get emotional, I'm just going to ask him what it was like to be in Jaws. Uh, that, that's my like safety route. And so I do that anyway, I may cut all of that out. I'm not sure, but I, I do get Uh, I get a little um, reflective and emotional. So there's that. I also want to mention that this podcast is brought to you by Sitting, the new single by TJ Mack. No, it's not actually. I have no sponsors. I just do it. But um, Sitting (laughs) is something that one of my past podcast guests, Brian Jordan Alvarez, put out there in the world uh, on, uh, on social media. And it's become this viral sensation. It's everywhere. There's all these covers of it. Brian is really brilliant, a funny writer and comedian, And uh, I interviewed him about his Caleb Gallo web series a number of years ago. And he has all these characters that he does on TikTok or YouTube or Instagram, whatever. And this one song just kind of blew up and there's all these covers. So anyway, you probably know about it already. Or if you don't, you might because it's just been everywhere. And it's it's wild when something goes viral. And it's really cool when it's somebody that you have in your podcast. Um, but there are two ways you can support this podcast if you like it. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and you can leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. It helps me cover my expenses. Or I would love it if you considered becoming a subscriber to DNR Studios. DNR Studios is a group of shows. I'm part of it uh, for a monthly fee. You get my show early and you get all these other great shows. Most of them are LGBTQ. So it's just a great community. And you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. All right, here is the slightly teary interview with Mitchell Anderson. Joining us now from Atlanta, it's actor, singer, writer, Mitchell Anderson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dennis. Good to see you. When I saw you were doing this show, this this show about your life, and you were bringing it to LA, I was like, I've got to track him down. I really want to interview him. 
Um, we knew each other a bit back in the day, and I always liked you so much. And, and then I disappeared. And then you disappeared. You went to Atlanta. You got the yeah. hell out of Dodge. I think you really played it right, frankly. Don't you think? What was it like to leave L.A.? You, you'd, you'd, you'd done acting. You'd had success. You fell in love. You're like, right. peace out. <laughs> what was it like to leave? Uh, you know, I honestly feel like I was lucky enough to find love that took me geographically out of the center of, you know, show business universe. Yeah. And I had, uh, it was really at the end of my thirties, I was just thinking, you know, I think that I'm done. I, I didn't, I wasn't really getting parts that were that interesting, or I should say parts weren't being put in front of me that were very interesting. Right. And what I was enjoying was going to different regional theaters and doing great theater. Um, so I went to New York thinking that I would, you know, travel up and down the coast because Richie and I, Richie Arpino, my husband, yeah. had we'd been together for about four or five years and that travel back and forth across the country was getting to us. So yeah. uh, in the, like, June of 2001, I went to New York City, um, and fortunately, Victor Garber was shooting Alias in um, in L.A., and he let me live in his apartment on the Upper West Side. Oh, um, so, what a hero. And, Yay, Victor Garber. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to do a little name dropping. Yeah. Um, so I'm up in New York, and I turned 40 in uh, the last uh, second to last week of August in 2001, and then... September 11th happened and I was in New York, Richie was in Atlanta. And during that week of turmoil, um, I drove down to Atlanta cause I couldn't get a flight out. Yeah. And during, I, I would say, honestly, on that drive, I, I, I congratulated myself for a good career and gave myself permission to find another career. Wow, you had that kind of conversation with yourself on the drive. Well, yeah, it's a nineteen-hour drive. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of right? there's a lot of back and yeah. forth. Wow. Back and forth. Um, wow. And so it, like it was that drive that uh, that set my life into a different uh, trajectory, right? Um, and I don't think necessarily if I hadn't had that geographical out, if I hadn't moved out of Los Angeles or New York, right. I don't have stopped acting because I, you know, I certainly had enough jobs to, you know, eke out a living or do, you know, some years I did really well. And, and there's always that chance that the very next job right. that you audition for is going to be, you know, a big Broadway show or a new series or whatever. But I just, I don't know. After those couple of years of, after I came out in 1996, I, you know, I did a lot of activism and I, and I felt like that was super important and I was really proud of it. And I just was ready. Yeah. It was, a, uh, it was the time and you were at peace with it. You've written this show called you better call your mother about your journey. And I read it twice. I read it when you first sent it to me and then I read it again this morning and I cried both times. I find it very moving, but what strikes me in your story is there's not a lot of bitterness around Hollywood, the Hollywood of it all, or the, you know, because from the outside, to my mind, you were kind of the first in the leading man category. When somebody asked me, that's, you are who I think of. Maybe there were others, but you're the one that comes to my mind. And I think sometimes the person that goes first pays a bigger price or whatever, but your story isn't about like 
agents and that it's not that's not the vibe and i was i found that very refreshing um because well, I, there's another version of this story that that maybe i was in my head which isn't the story at all you know there's always the story that you want to tell and the story that you could tell right uh, and the point really of this story and the cool thing that happened when I started writing it, it was in my 60th year. And I, and as you can tell, there's like, I look at my life in year in 20 year periods. Right. Um, but in my 60th year, I got to look back at my life, see where I am now and understand the path that got me here. And I can't look at that moment in 1996 at the GLAAD Awards coming out sort of spontaneously as anything but, first of all, exceptional. Second of all, it re- I say in the play, it was the moment my life changed forever because right. suddenly I was a different person personally. Right. And it set up all of these things along the way to allow growth and, you know, allow real love in. Uh, I feel like my relationship with my parents, especially my father changed in a way that I don't know if it would have been possible had I not taken that step. Yeah. And how, you know, I just feel like as, as one ages, hopefully you get to put in perspective what's more important. Right. Yeah. So, um, when I was in my late twenties, I would say the most important thing in my life was whether or not I was going to book the next, you know, Doogie Howser, Karen Carpenter story, whatever. Your career. I got into my late thirties. That wasn't as important anymore. Right. What became important was this sort of sense of community and this sense of purpose that, uh, I was able to, you know, uh, pull by the horns, like really, like really grab onto it. Did it hurt my career? Most definitely. For sure. Um, You know, in hindsight, there's some regret that I was not more supported by some of the people in power who could have supported me. Um, And uh, that's a different story. Um, And I didn't want to write that. What I was writing about was this remarkable thing of being able to look back at my life at 60 and go, wow, look at how I, look what I did. Yeah. You know? It's, it's pretty incredible. And I was moved to read about it. The title, You Better Call Your Mother, comes from those GLAAD Awards in 1996. And the way you describe it is you hadn't planned to come out, but you had started your character on Party of Five had come out and you were going down the press line and they were all asking you what it's, what's it like to play a gay character when you're straight? And you just you just couldn't do it anymore. And when you got up on the mic, you just when did you know you were going to say what you were gonna, what you said, which is that I can't really answer that question because I'm gay. Well, I honestly I feel like uh, it was building towards that because there was this kind of weird thing of being gay, but and then playing a gay character. And you know, it was a it was a not a hit television show, but it was a cult hit, right? Right. Uh, and. So I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it happened all that night, but I remember sitting in, um, in an office of a producer several weeks earlier. Um, I won't mention him and he's still a good friend. And he said, if it's, if not you, then who, you know? Um, so wow, it had, it had crossed my mind. 
But that night was, it was the opportunity meeting the moment, right? Yeah. And, and it really was like literally people saying, what's it like to be straight and play this gay character? And, and at that moment, I was like, just do it, just do it, just do it. And it, it was an incredible moment. Well, the title comes from, I guess, one of the GLAD producers. You walk off stage and they're like, you better call your mother, which I think is yeah. hilarious and, and so um, perfect. Did you call your mother? And if so, what did you say and what was that call like? Uh, I did call my mother. Um, you know, obviously my parents had, um, I had come out to my parents, uh, 11 years before. So yeah. it's not, that part of it was not a surprise. Um, I think that in their minds over those 11 years, it's fine that Mitchell is gay. It's actually fine, sort of, that he brings Jim, my partner at the time, home for vacation. It's fine if the close friends know. But in their minds, it's like, let's keep it. It's right all about there. containment. Correct. Containment. And, yeah. you know, we're not super embarrassed about it, but but let's just, you know, Mitchell's, you know, the good thing is that I was a, a, a really good kid and they really liked me. And I yeah. was, and I, and I was always like, you know, I, it was, it was an adjustment, you know, the story right. was, and I talk about that in the play, like, you know, my story at that time was their story. And then our stories diverged. But at any rate, I called my mom. And I said, okay, here's what's happened. And she said, oh, Mitchell, why did you have to do that? And mm -hmm. then I talked to her about the young people in the world that don't have, even if they're questioning, they don't have loving parents. Right. And and I I sort of appealed to her I don't know, her sense of being a mother. And I said, what happens if I come out and somebody is able to look at my story and have courage and have strength, right? And I think that there was a, a seed that happened that day that maybe, I don't know, that maybe started her thinking, oh, maybe this is okay. And then as I talk about in the play, my dad totally got on board. He was actually kind of your your position, your activism, what you meant to the culture. It seemed to capture his imagination. Like he was intrigued by it, and he admired you for it, and the way he expressed that over that dinner, I found that incredibly moving because that is not the relationship I had with my dad. Uh. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Dennis, <laughs> I, I know it. It really, it really does bring up a lot of things, and that's the cool thing about performing this play. Is that it, it's brought up in so many different people, whether you're whatever relationship you have with your parents, the the journey, you know, and and I just somehow I, I think that as a child, and you know, I talk about it in the play, as a child, I wanted to I wanted my dad to be proud of me. Yeah. And and it wasn't like I had to fight for that. Because I was a good kid. Like, I was a really good kid. I wanted to do well. I wanted to perform. I wanted to be on stage. I mean, it, figuratively, right? Um, but also, literally. Um, so, but also, my dad, at, on the, like, the good old Republican way, was, he was, you know, a, he was a delegate at the Republican convention. He loved that sort of activism. Public service. 
like-minded Republican activist, right? Yeah. He wasn't like what we see now. He, right. In fact, he died right before um, Trump got elected. And he, and in some ways I was, you know, I'm glad he missed it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. He was, he was mortified, absolutely mortified that this man was going to be president. Yeah. Or that, that he could president. be. Yeah. I, I do think that when I, you know, that night that he came to LA and I talk about it in the play and, and I really did like, tell him the story about why it's important and and what I was going to be doing over I don't know if I really knew how important it was going to be but but I but the those letters that I mean I remember getting a letter from this kid in the Philippines that just slayed me yeah and I was like me like in the you know somebody got it all the way across the world yeah and I think that they just totally understood it yeah what was interesting to me about it is your world seemed to be really steeped in activism already. Like AIDS was happening and raging, but you were, that was really your community. You weren't like, Oh, I'm just theater person or I'm just celebrity person. You were really steeped in it. So I imagine the pull to, to be a part of it must've been particularly strong compared to somebody that was like, Oh, I, I don't really think about that. I'm just an actor or whatever. You were really connected. Well, yes. And I was connected by a couple different things. One, Jim, my first partner, who was, you know, 12 years older than me. And as I say in play, he had no patience for the closet. But he was also, uh, he also got me sort of thinking about our place in the world and how yeah. it was important to, like, establish yourself and tell the story and be out, be honest with people. And then this whole group, um, it's a group called Young Artists United that was very big in the, in the late eighties, early nineties. And it was like started by Sarah Jessica Parker and this guy, Daniel Sladek and, um, Daphne Zuniga and Eve Plump, like all these really great people. Right. And they, I got involved with them and, and we would go into high schools and we'd just tell our story. We'd, we'd kind of relate whoever we were and how we, but I always left the gay thing out. Right. So you were already doing this, but you weren't talking about I being was, gay. But I was out. I was right. always in high school, you know, telling about being sort of an overachiever and how right. I wasn't really accepted and how, you know, but, you know, code word for I was gay and, you know, and, and you know, maybe it's going to be okay with you. But, uh, but yes, I was steeped in it. And then there was the raising money. You know, I was a key volunteer for many years for the AIDS Walk and the Dance-A-Thon. Yeah. Um, LA and it was so much a part of my life. Um, so I was all around it for that whole, you know, I would say six or seven years before I came out. What right. did, uh, what did your bosses at party five think when you came out? I can't remember exactly what the reaction was, but I do know that when they told me that I was going to, you know, that Ross was going to come out, right. I was like, Holy shit. How did that all happen? But it made sense, you know, for the character of San Francisco, young game, you know, young single man, you know, right. whatever. Um, and then I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm assuming that they followed it and they, like, I don't remember ever having like a real conversation about it. I do remember having a conversation with my Orthodox Jewish manager. Yeah. What was that conversation he, like? He was great. Oh my God. It was unbelievable. He was like, okay, 
let's 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 talk about this and let's see how we can you know how we can navigate this through yeah that's amazing that part was pretty cool yeah and you really embrace the activism part and you talk about going and speaking in different places and flying around the country and and that was that was fun and meaningful to you right yeah 100% and i think that one of the reasons why I decided to transition out of show business is because that part of my life um the the activism part the, the telling the story part meeting people all over the country and being part of this national movement towards Acceptance, understanding, and in fact, legislation. It, it was it was important. It, it, cl- and, it was more meaningful than than the other stuff. It, it it sort of eclipsed it. I think so. Yeah, because also, you know, at that, you know, I, I wasn't getting great parts. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't getting the stuff that I felt like I should be getting, or uh, being able to audition for the things I should be able to audition for. I don't know. There was there was part of that that, you know, it did eclipse it. And then that became more important because that's what I was doing. Yeah. Um, this, I wasn't getting, you know, I, I needed to make a living, too. I remember when you came out being in the gay media and, and just in the Hollywood community, there was this feeling of let's see how this goes. Let's like you were the test case. Let's let's observe. And I felt that. So I'm wondering yeah. what you felt. You must have felt that. Did you feel that expectation or that, that let's see. You know, I think that I only felt it in retrospect. I was trying Good. to go on the right. I, I mean, I really, I really wanted to believe that um, what I had done was important. And it was, no, I, I, it's not like I don't believe it was important, but I wanted to believe that that was um, the moment that redefined what, who I was in society in the world. I mean, I still wanted to work. I still needed to work. But each individual job became less important in a way because I felt like I was doing something bigger. That's amazing. I'm glad about that. I'm glad um, you didn't feel like, oh, I need to succeed in Hollywood because I'm the test case. Yes. But so as I say, in retrospect, I think I would not be at, at quite as optimistic. I mean, in the moment, I was trying to be as optimistic right. and, and and own the choice that I made. Yeah. And, and make it mean something and make right. it important. Um, I remember, you know, becoming very disappointed um, that the very – I hesitate to say this because I don't want people to think that I'm that I have sort of like bitter bones. But there was part of me that wished that there was more of uh, a parachute or you know or a net underneath me. Right? Do you know that that the very people that could have said, "Wow, that was incredible. Let's bring you in for this, or let's bring you in for that, or let's make sure that you're." booked enough to get your health insurance or whatever, whatever it is, you know, there, there, I didn't necessarily, I got a lot of congratulations, but not a lot of jobs. Oh yeah. I remember you did relax. It's just sex for my friend, PG, PJ Castellaneta that came afterwards. And that was, that was one of the best. So that's what I mean. Like I was, that movie gave me a chance to really stretch and really show what I could do as an actor. But that movie did not translate into 
other people saying, oh, my God, he's not a bad actor. Let, let's get him in Yeah, this. we have to bring him in. Yeah. And, and today you see people like Ryan Murphy, you know, giving jobs to, you know, out actors and like, you know, kind of like taking that on in a way. But that was that was later. Yeah. Well, you know, Ryan Murphy put me in popular and said that I was going to be a, um, a recurring character and he had me on twice. Maybe he thinks I'm not a good actor, so that and that's always possible. I forgot, um, like he was making those shows. That was like his first show back in the day. Yeah, and he didn't have, you know, that was his first show, popular, yeah. and he didn't have probably the same pull that he had has now. How did other gay men in the business treat you after you came out? Well, uh, some people, uh, most everybody, were certainly uh, they they admired that moment right they respected they, they, it yeah good on you know um and i think that if i go back and and talk to people now they're like like you like you remember it you it was a moment in time yeah um, i think now it's a little bit different um but they i, I was very uh lots of slaps on the back yeah but but not a lot of i'm gonna join you I love other moments in your play very much. Um, the thing that Peter Glue says to you, it's like your first gay kiss, right? Right. Oh, break it down a little, or we, maybe we don't want to give away too much. But the, the sentence is just, the way he um, says that he's going to kiss you is just amazing. Right, right. Uh, you know how, like, when, uh, um, when you have magnets of the same pole? Oh, right. Or- yeah, yeah, yeah. All that energy between you and there's, and that's the way, that's the way like really good love stories or, or, uh, romantic comedies happen, right? Right. That, you know, you get tension, 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 and then suddenly something flips, right? And that's really what it was because Peter, as I say in the play, I'm not even really sure I thought he was sexy, but I knew I wanted to be alone with him. And I don't know if I wanted to be alone with him because I knew he was, he was gay and I wanted to. See, you were intrigued. Oh, I was intrigued, and he's. And he was, this uh, is in college. You were you were in college age, right? And then he was. Yeah, I was probably nineteen or twenty at the yeah. time, and he was three years older. He right. had graduated. Uh, he, I think, he was three, four, maybe four years older. So basically the same. I mean, you know, he was definitely older, but not. He wasn't like an eighty-four-year-old professor, right? Right. It was, wasn't gross. Right. Um, he was so sweet. And, you know, I think there was also something he, he was very encouraging about my voice and he liked my, you know, what I did in the, in the show. And so, you know, of course I was flirting with him, I guess, but I didn't even know I was flirting with him. But then to, to, I, it won't give too much away to say. So what happened was he worked at the, at the, our campus pub. And we used to go there literally almost every day. And and then one night I was like, I'm just going to hang out. Right. And all my friends left and the, the, he was closing down the, the whole thing and I helped him clean up. And then he turns out the lights. And I love this part in the play. I say, you know, when you can recall significant moments in your life, it's like you're watching yourself on a movie screen. Right. Is it in slow motion? I think it is. Right. Because that, Really, what it's, it really is. Like, he, I can remember he turns off the lights, and we're, I can remember the exact 
spot we were standing in. And he says, I'm going to count to three, Mitchell Anderson. And if I don't meet with significant resistance, I'm going to kiss you. And then he did. So that one, two, three, and then great moment in the play. And then, you know, there's a big song joke at the end of that moment. and People love it. I love that he used both your names, Mitchell Anderson. That's how you knew it was on. Um, yeah, I just love that. If I don't meet with significant resistance, I just, oh, it's so vivid. It's so great. And I'm glad that you had, and that was it. You just, that was the kiss and you guys didn't date or anything like that. Or that was just the moment, right? Or did you see him after that? We didn't date. Um, Right. No, we, um, we, but we did get together again. Okay. Good for you. Thank you. Yes. Without too graphic, we did get together again. Yes. Okay. All right. I like that. Um, you talk about this people choice, this people's choice awards moment where you're on Doogie Howser and you get invited to go to this award show. And instead of taking a boyfriend, you, you take a girl, you take a beard and how, and how that felt. That must not have been fun or must have felt like it's so weird no. to have something really exciting happen and then have this other part that, that. Well, yeah. And as I, as I talk about the show, um, and I'm not really sure it was. The, it's the most elegant way to say it, but it was a year when it should have been the highest of highs. But right. in fact, it was the lowest because I was scared every step of the way. And I know that there were a couple factors. One, I was scared that people would find out. You know, here I'm playing. Um, you know, Doctor McGuire, who's like you know a skirt chasing guy, and he's. And I was, so I was scared that the PA that delivered my scripts was going to find out that I was living with a man. Right. But then on the other hand, I had Jim who wasn't, he didn't love the fact that I was on television. I mean, he didn't want to share me with anybody. So there was, there was this pull back, like, don't shine, don't be. Yeah, I don't know. It was really, it was very complicated. And then things would happen, and I like the People's Choice Awards, and I and I was conflicted. I mean, I I couldn't take him because for for all of those reasons, because I didn't want people to know that I was with him, but also because he wasn't so great about it. Right? Yeah, he he wasn't into that world, so it would not have been fun. That world, he didn't, you know, he wanted me to be a theater actor and that was it. Wow. Um, so, oh God, it was so complicated and it was, and, and I do remember that, you know, I talk about it in the play where I'm, the, the limo pulls out of the driveway and he's just pathetically standing there like waving at me. And, and for me, I don't know, a lot of people wouldn't care. A lot of people would just move on, say, Jim, if you don't like it, then we're going to have to break up because this is who I am. Um, but I also didn't think it was right. You know, somewhere deep inside of my soul, I also knew that I was lying and I don't like lying. Yeah, it, it wasn't a good feeling. And, and it was, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You often hear stories of award shows where people tell you what was really going on that night and they're either fighting in their personal life or they're battling cancer. Like, And as kids, we grow up or people aspiring to be in the business, we look at those award shows and we think, oh, that's the dream. And so many times there's these other stories that go with it. It's just, it, I don't know, it strikes me as funny. There's another anecdote where you're, you're on this tour, this trip, I guess, to New Zealand and your job basically is to schmooze and you're good at that. Um, 
and and your partner Jim says to you, "Would you mind not shining quite so brightly?" And I was like, "Oh wow, that I I I related that to that because I have dated people in the past where you felt like it was a competition. You didn't feel like it was a partnership. There was some kind of there was some kind of competition happening as opposed to like a team thing happening. I, I feel like I mean I I as a in the writing of the play the one of the things that I, I talk about in the first act is how you know I was just naturally uh I I just I I, I was a bright shiner you know like yeah um, in high school and stuff like even though I was I was made fun of and I was called a fag and I just couldn't help myself that's who I was right, right. so that when we go to New Zealand on this all expense paid first class thing, you know, trip. And all I had to do was have a few drinks and be nice to people. And I think in the play, I say, my mother trained me for this from the time I could speak. Um, And then we get back to the hotel and he's like furious with me because I keep, because he's like, why do you have to be, why is it all about you? I'm like, it's not all about me. I'm just trying to be nice. Yeah. So that we, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, people come into your life and you do learn from them and hopefully you move on and you get, you get perspective, but you, and you know what you, you need. Certainly Jim helped me so much in my journey of self discovery you know, in terms of my sexuality and owning my sexuality and becoming a man around that. Right. And that was important because that was important to him. But it also, he was also there for me in that, uh, in that journey. What he wasn't able to do and why our relationship ultimately couldn't work is he didn't have any gray area. It was either black or white. It was either all this or all that, but there's nothing in between. So mm. allowing other people like my mother, for instance, allowing my, uh, allowing other people to have their own path was not, he wasn't able to do that. Um, so watching me at this, you know, at different various cocktail parties in New Zealand, just being me and, kind of doing my job just drove him insane. Yeah, that's why you were there. That's what you were there for. I used to work on cruise ships and we called that swanning. Uh, We have to go swan at the (laughs) captain's cocktail party. You know, we have to do 45 minutes of swanning and then we have a heard like, so you were basically swanning and swanning was often often a drag, but occasionally fun. Um, I I never, I mean, I didn't get a whole lot of opportunity to do that kind of, (laughs) but I, I always enjoyed it. I love being in places where I don't know anybody and yeah. I'm talking to them. Yeah. Um, you made a movie called Relax, It's Just Sex, uh, directed and written by my friend PJ Castellaneta. And I was an extra in this movie. Do you remember this? There was a scene at the All-Star Cafe in the Hotel Knickerbocker where I used to have these parties in the 90s in this oh, bottom. Yeah. And I, I was on a laptop, I think, writing in a coffee shop and you were there having a conversation and I was writing on my laptop. Yes. So we were yeah. laptop jockeys together. Uh, I used to have so many fun parties at that place. So here, reading your play, it just took me back to the nineties when things were, it was exciting that time, the magazine covers. I remember yeah. you on the cover with uh, Melissa Etheridge. 
uh, you and Richie, uh, your your husband. Yeah. And it was <laughs> Melissa and Julie Cipher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, um, yeah, I, I at the end of you know that that whole fight for marriage equality, I felt like I was on the beginning end of it. Yeah. Uh, and I remember that proposition. I don't remember what number it was, but it was the very first anti-gay marriage initiative in the country and it was in california um do you remember this one vaguely yeah, yeah. 1998 maybe um it was uh and i kept like standing on my soapbox saying guys if we don't fight this and if we don't vote this down it's going to spread all over the country and you know p.s it did people weren't listening to us they were it wasn't it wasn't the issue that they could handle and i do think that it was part of the, on the other side people they knew we were exhausted right you know we were exhausted from the 15 years of fighting for people's lives yeah fighting for money and and treatment and acceptance and understanding and compassion right we were exhausted and then this this new thing Kind of got put in our laps, but people saying you better not be able to get married. You right. and we have to we have to fight this. And you know that's why in, it, it the the moment in the play that I talk about that and how I am able to because we put those building blocks in place back in the year two thousand. Richie and I have are now legally married for more than seven years yeah we've been together 26 years and we're legally married for more than seven years because of all that movement right and being and you were part of it which is yeah fantastic um richie you talk about meeting him first like randomly and then meeting him again a little bit later but it sounds to me like you had have one of those meant to be this is my person there's a magic there and i i recently went to a friend's wedding and they were talking about how they met, and there's magic there, and I think that's what you got to have, and it's extremely rare. But there was that feeling of like, this is the guy, because you joked about getting married like the, in the first day or something, right? Yes, it was so crazy. I don't know. I honestly, I I, I totally agree that there is magic that happens. I mean, I think it happened with Jim, but also I think I'm, I must be the kind of person that allows that into their lives, right? Sure. Because I've had two relationships my entire adult life. One lasted 12 years. This one, you know, uh, probably, hopefully will last till, you know, they can't last any longer, but 26 years is a long time. Um, but I do think that that, uh, you know, I talk about it in the play, the first the first meeting in West Hollywood was this sort of chance lunch that we had together at the Mongolian barbecue joint uh, near, near Bank of America on San Monica Boulevard. Um, and then a couple of years later, when I saw him at the um, at the HRC dinner here in Atlanta, and we and we we joked about he he literally got down on his knees and said, "Will you marry me?" I said, "Yes, but let's have a date first. And then the very next morning, I. I, I woke up, and this is in the play. I woke up and sang this um, song from Amy Baker Gun, and he, he looked at me like, "What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? Right. Who is this person?" But he also thought it was funny. But he also started it with the proposal, like you. Yes, I, yes. Oh, it was. 
Yeah. What is it about him that grabbed you right away? Uh, honestly, I feel, you know, as I, as, as I say in the play, I had only been single for about six months, right? And, and Jim, it was very difficult the last few years. He, our personalities were, were uh, at odds and it was destructive. And I think that when I met Richie, who was this incredibly full of life, vivacious, outwardly loving person. And you can see how other people view him, right? And and there was just just this sense of optimism. And and I talk about how I don't think you have to be Richie and I are not exactly alike. You know, the the truth is, especially back then, he was much more outgoing than I ever was. But I feel like you have to be able to get up in the morning and look at the world the same way for a relationship mm. to last, right? And I think that that for some reason, I was able to acknowledge that, see it, and he was able to say, don't worry, it's going to be okay. We can do this. And, you know, five years later, I moved here, changed my life, um, created a new career, and, you know, now it's all sort of in the rearview mirror. Um, you have a restaurant. You have two. Two at the moment? I do. Yeah. <laughs> two. Uh, two and that's it. Two no and more. two and two and no more called Metro Fresh. Um, yeah, is it Met- just like in the movie, in the show The Bear? Is it exactly like that? That, uh, what, that show where they're losing their minds every second? It's very much like that. Um, uh, it, but we don't, I don't have a kitchen like that. We're, we're, we don't yell at each other. We have fun. We dance. We sing, you know. Do they call each other chef? Because he's everyone gets called chef there. It's like a thing of respect, I guess. After I saw the show, I tried to start calling people chef, but it sounded weird. It, it didn't work out. It was cute for like a day. Have you always liked to cook? Is it not a surprise that you yeah. ended up doing this? Yeah. So this is the cool thing is that I grew up um, uh, with six kids in my family. And, um, you know, my mom was a good cook. She, I, I, I always was at... I always admired the fact that she could get food on the table for eight people every single day. That's pretty impressive, right? Yeah. Uh, my two grandmothers were amazing cooks. One of them, my mom's mom was sort of more Julia Child, sort of fine dining, fine cooking. And my, my grandmother, my uh, dad's mom, was more like Betty Crocker, like very Americana, you know, uh, roast beef and, and potatoes. But I always loved what food does, right? It brings people together. It fosters conversation. And when I was looking – and so then when we grew up, our my brothers and sisters and I, when we go home from vacation from college and then after college, the only thing we – talk about is food and the only thing we do is like at breakfast we're talking about what we're going to have for lunch and at lunch we're talking about what we're going to have for dinner and how we're going to prepare it and everybody's sort of inspiring everybody else and like trying new things and and you know my sister Heidi who lives in New York will talk about uh, uh, restaurants that she goes to or she'll she'll say oh my god I found this veal chop that I just can't wait to season in this way and cook it this way and so I was very inspired by my family. And also, I, I believe that the community that is created inside a restaurant is very beautiful. And I also happen to be able to uh, 
a, a friend of Richie's is this woman who has a restaurant very much like Metrofresh. Who um, she was an actress. Um, she went to Carnegie Mellon. And she, when I was hunting around for something else to do, she said, yeah, come in and work with me. Um, uh, I'll, I'll teach you. And so for about six or eight months, I worked for free. Um, she taught me her approach to food, which is very much uh, improvisational and not sort of recipe driven. Interesting. But it's all soups and salads. So it's like creating things out of, out of ingredients that you just happen to have around. And for some reason, that really struck a chord in me in, and my creative juices and my, my our artistry was able to, to be fed by that. Right. Um, pun intended. And uh, so I worked with her for a couple of years. And this is a great story about how a mentor can really put you on a different path. So Super Jenny at that time was adopting a baby as a single mother. Right, And I learned enough that when the baby was being born, she left for like three months on sort of maternity leave. And I ran her restaurant that I was the first person in her five years of existence at that point that she ever trusted to run the restaurant. She came back. I worked with her for a couple more years. And then she said, you're ready to go open your own place. I said, Please come with me and we'll open it together. She said, you don't need me. You think you do, but you don't need She's me. She's like Mr. Miyagi and, and you're like the karate kid. I know. <laughs> and she said, I'll be there for you every step of the way. Just give, just call me if you ever need me. So this is the coolest, most beautiful story that I don't have in the play. And I, and I, cause I just couldn't find a place for it. When I open my doors and it's going to be 18 years on um, October 10th. Uh, she put a sign on her door that said, I'm closed today. I'm going to Metrofresh. Why don't you join me? Wow. That's amazing. And, yeah, it's it's an incredible story. And she has enough of an ego and enough of a sense of self that she realized that what she was teaching me, I was going to take and replicate in my own way. Right. Right. Over the years, Metrofresh has evolved one way. Super Jenny is a, you know, it's a totally different environment. But they, they come from the same sort of roots, right? And I think that she's sort of proud of the fact that she gave, in a way, gave birth yeah. to this other restaurant, right? Yeah. That's been now around for 18 years and is, is, you know, it's the hub of the neighborhood. It's, it's a place where people eat five times a, a week. Did your experience in Hollywood, the ups and downs of it, did it prepare you well for being an entrepreneur and like the blows and like not giving up of it all? Like, are there parallels in those two worlds? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, life experience definitely helps you all across the board. Right. Um, I also think that, you know, my liberal arts education at Williams helped me a lot too, because I was... It was like, oh yeah, I can go do something else at age forty. Yeah, know? I can, I can teach myself something else. So, it, but you know, unfortunately, it ne- it has not gotten easier. It's hard, it's right? Eighteen years, it's still hard. How did you weather the pandemic? What was that like? It it was it, it, one of the reasons I wrote the play is because emotionally I was just drained and. uh I needed something that was my own. 
So 2020 was for all of us. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not an exception here. Um, it was the hardest eight months of my life. Right. Um, and I was exhausted from that. And I just felt like if I'm going to, I'm going to expire if I don't have something to take back and that's mine and not related to the retro, to Metrofresh. Right. Metrofresh great. And I love it, but it's still, it's all encompassing, you know, and being able to have this play for the last few years to, to focus on and talk to you about. And, you know, I just a couple of weeks ago went to my hometown and performed it. And now I'm coming out to LA to perform. It. And it's just nice to be able to like have emails that aren't all about. The yeah. They're on about lentils and, and, uh, yeah, romaine and all of that here, stuff. Here, David's cookies are in and we can finally get in. <laughs> what do you love about the restaurant business? What's the best part? Uh, honestly, for me, the best part is the, the world that we created. Um, if you come to my restaurant in Midtown Atlanta, it's 100% reflective of what Midtown Atlanta is. And it's one of the most diverse culturally, you know, uh, uh, it's all kinds of people. It's black, white, gay, straight, old, young, professional artists, you know, all, all walks of life. And they're just all together. Um, and I think that's super exciting. The other thing that, you know, I've gotten really good at creating these you know, the soups and salads. Yeah. I, I'm, I feel like, you know, in some ways I feel like I'm a much better chef than I ever was an actor. Interesting. And you have Michili. You have your own kind of chili. Is do I yeah. say it right, Michili? Yeah, Michili. And the the reason I call it Michili is because um, when I worked at Super Jenny, there's a woman there who used to. I w- would walk in the door and she'd go Michili. <laughs> that was so your nickname. That, so that was my nickname. So when I created my own chili, I called it Michili. Michili, I love it. If I went there, what would you tell me to order? What would you serve me? It honestly would depend on the day. Like, Interesting. I, can, I can tell you today I had um, a salad that I made with fresh plums and jicama that I sort of marinated overnight in a little bit of local honey and cayenne pepper, a little bit of cayenne. Nice. And, some, and then we just finished it with some fresh lime juice and olive oil. And it's that that's what I would tell you to have today. You know? What do you wear when you're being a chef? I actually wear a chef coat. You wear a chef coat? Does it have your name on yeah. it? It says Mitchell Anderson. Yeah. Owner. Owner. Yeah. Thank you very much. Do you have knives that you're like, where are my knives? I need my special knives. Um, you know what? I'm not that picky. Okay. Um, I have, I have a knife service. Okay. And, um, so I pay for somebody to come in and switch out my knives every week. Yeah. Uh, now, you co-starred with Kevin Spiritus, who I know, in the web series. Are you, is it a web series or is it an Amazon series? How, would you, how do you describe it? Uh, it's uh, it's the, you're, the technical term that you're supposed to use is digital series. A digital series called After Forever. It's won a bunch of Emmys. And how long had you gone without acting before you took on that part? Uh, I hadn't been uh, – I I – over the years, I've done different show, different plays here in Atlanta. Right. Um, so uh, I hadn't been on screen since uh, Relax Is Just Sex. So it had been almost 
But uh, we shot the first season in 2018, and I bet I haven't been on screen since 2002. Wow. So 16 years. Yeah. What was it like to be back in front of the camera? How did it feel? Oh my, it, it was great, because here's, here's why. I didn't need anything from it. I just got to go show up and do the work and enjoy the process. And uh, the director and Michael Slade, who unfortunately passed away um, a year ago, um, the writer, as well as Kevin, were so kind to me and they were so encouraging and loved what I did. And I would go home at the end of every day thinking, why wasn't this the feeling that I had when I was a professional it was, actor? It was different. It felt a lot different than when you were in Hollywood. Uh, so much different. And I, a lot had to do with the fact that I don't do it for a living. Right. You know, I, the I, stakes it, were lower. Right. The, 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 the actual stakes of, you know, whether or not I'm going to book another job. Right. Um, were, uh, you know, it wasn't that I didn't care about that. Yeah. So, so it was a blast. And you've got a third season coming up? Yes. The third season is completed. I think he's waiting till SAG after goes back to work so that we can actually talk about it. You picked a couple of questions from the observation deck. Um, what's a voicemail that you played more than once? We talked about it a little bit before. Um, at the end of my night with my dad, when he visited me in Los Angeles after I came out. Yeah. Um, I dropped him at his hotel room and I talk about this in the play. And this is, this is the part of the play that always chokes me up because I got home and there was a message on my answering machine back before we had voicemail that said, thank you for a lovely dinner, Mitchell. I'm proud of you. Mm. Go out there and be a leader. And not only do it, did I play that a lot? I, you know, I wrote it in my play. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Not only was he proud of you, but he was, he wanted more. He was like, make, make the most of this opportunity uh, in this yeah. moment. Make a difference. Yeah. And he was always about, you know, he said, rise to the top of your peer level. But he wanted, he wanted us to, to do something. Yeah. Whatever that was. I think a lot of times with parents, especially around gay issues, there's fear there. So it's just like, don't, don't make a spectacle. Don't just be safe. Don't like, it feels so dangerous that they mm -hmm. want things to be small. They don't want you to go out and be a leader. So that, that moved me a lot to hear that. That's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. yeah. Another question that you picked is where's the strangest place you've ever been recognized? Okay. This, uh, I, I, Probably shouldn't tell this story, but I think it's really funny. So, hundred years ago, after I came out, um, and uh, I'm traveling all over the country for this and that, right? And one, uh, I had to do an appearance in San Francisco, um, and <laughs> it was some party weekend. If I, maybe it was even Gay Pride or something. I don't know. I, all I remember is that Richie and I were out at a you know a club at four o'clock in the morning on the dance floor, you know, messing around like everybody does when you're in your, you know, in your prime. We sure. don't, I don't do it. Um, and I, rem I remember hearing somebody say, Oh, 
look over there. There's our role model. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the title of this episode. Oh, no. just some some guy on crystal with his shirt off, just just giving you the side eye. Um, yeah, can't couldn't handle, <laughs> and you could hear it over the music. You heard it. Our role model. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, another question you picked from the observation deck is this one: What job were you the most excited to learn you got? Okay, so, so for some reason, when I saw that question, I thought of two. Oh, good. The, All right. The first one isn't so much a job, but um, it was super exciting. So when I was a se- senior in college, I went to Williams College, um, and I had decided, you know, to major in theater and be an actor, right? So I auditioned for uh, graduate schools and I had done pretty well. Like I got into USC, I got into um, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, um, but then I went down to New York and auditioned for Juilliard. And, you know, you audition for Juilliard and there's literally the day that you audition, there's 500 people there and you you break off and you go to different rooms and you have like literally three minutes to like get them to, to like you. Yeah. Um, and later on the day you go back and they post, uh, the callback list. And of the 500 people that auditioned the day I did, there were four names on the list. Oh my gosh. And, And I was one of them. Um, and I, I can remember so clearly seeing my name on the list and thinking, oh my God, this might actually work. Like people, like there's something, there's something that I did. I don't, I don't think I was very good at that point, but there was something that I did that somebody recognized and they thought, oh yeah, this guy can do it. Wow. Um, So that was a pretty cool thing. And then actually, for some reason, I had the confidence that I went back the next day and I and I did a really good callback. And then I kind of thought I would get in. I don't somehow that gave me the confidence to it. I didn't get into Yale, but, you know, I did get into Juilliard, which is pretty good. Yeah. Did Um, you go to Juilliard? I did. Yeah. Then, you know, this actually leads into another job thing that I wasn't going to say, but, but in my first semester at Juilliard, um, this guy in my class, who's super great guy named Jeff Lower, he's an actor. And he, he came and knocked on my door. I lived on 77th and West end. And he, it was a Sunday afternoon. I was doing laundry. The only thing I had to wear, it was, you know, 1983. So give me a break. I was wearing overalls and a t-shirt. So he said, come on, let's go get a beer. So then we went up to the Dublin house on 79th street, and we sat there, we were drinking a beer, it's three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, and there was a, a guy and a girl sitting at a table, two tables away. And they, they kept looking over at us and talking and looking over at us and talking. And we're like, what, what, what are they doing? So at some point, this man comes over and talks to me and says, hey, we were wondering if you're an actor. And I said, Yes. Why? He said, well, we are casting uh, a musical about the Civil War. Do you sing? I said, yes. He said, are you a tenor? I said, yes, I'm a tenor. Um, He said, would you come? You are perfect for this part. You look like you could play this part. And he said, I said, well, I can't really because I'm at Juilliard. I can't. You're not allowed to audition for things. Right. 
uh, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to work. You have to be at the school. But as it happened, for some reason, the very next morning, two of my classes had been canceled, which never, never happened. So I had the morning free. I said, well, I'll come down and sing for you, but I'm not really looking for work. So I went down there and I sang and I read and they, and I did a little dance routine. I'm not a dancer, but you know, I, enough so that I could do it. Right. And then they, um, they called me the very next day and said, we want you to do this part. And it was a, it was one of the leads in a free Broadway musical that was going to be, um, it was a workshop and then a, a big production in, uh, DC at Ford's theater. And, you know, thinking that it was going to go back to Broadway. And that was how I started my career. And so that was your first big gig professionally. Correct. Yeah. So I, I ended up leaving Juilliard in my first semester. So Juilliard gave me sort of the stamp of approval. Yeah. And I got this job totally by chance. And uh, I talked to my dad, I talked to my acting teacher and my acting teacher said, look, you know, you're here to work. So yeah. maybe this is a good idea for you. You know, I had already gotten a four year college degree. It was another, I would have been at Juilliard for another three and a half years. Wow. What was the name of the musical? It was called On Shiloh Hill. And it was, um, it was a musical that used, um, vintage music from the Civil War. And it, it was a beautiful show. It just wasn't Broadway material, really. But, but it, it was, was a great. good gig. Do you think if you hadn't been wearing the overalls, you might not have had that opportunity? But I think maybe you think I, you owe it all to the overalls. I owe it all to my dirty laundry. <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm gonna. That might be the title of this episode. Um, you embarked on writing this script. It sounded like during COVID when you're trying to make some sense of things. And sometimes I think you write things and you figure out what you got from it at the end. Like, what did you discover in the writing of this story? What were the themes or the ideas that emerged? Well, I think I talk about it in the last monologue a little bit, I, that I've had an interesting life. Yeah. Um, I, I When I set out to write it, I kind of knew the beats I wanted to say, right? And then it, um, uh, I exercise, I mean, obviously you write all the time, but I, I write a blog every single day. Um, because when I opened the restaurant, I wanted to, um, this is a little aside. Yeah, I, I like this. This is interesting. The, I wanted to get the menu into people's hands, right? And this was before, you know, people were posting everything right. on media. So I would, I had an email program. I sent in the email, but I would write a little story about life. Um, it's either about the restaurant or about the background of life. So that muscle was exercised. So when I was sitting down to write these little beats of my life, um, it all came out and, then it came time to write sort of the conclusion. Yeah. What did it all mean? And I thought, wow, this is an interesting story. Yeah. And, and I think that at, at my age, to be able to look back and say, I've lived a sort of an extraordinary life. Am I hugely famous? No. Do I have a lot of money? No. Do I have I? Have I solved, you know, the world's problems? No. But if you look at the story of my life, to me, it's extraordinary. And I think that 
that's what that's the message I hope that people take away from this is that everybody has these moments that make them extraordinary. And I think that that was what surprised me a little bit. You know, there's, there's a line in the show where I say I've had, I've, I've got been guided by some amazing people. I've known love and happiness. I've gotten to experience success and hard work. And I think most importantly, I believe my parents were proud of me before they died. Yeah. You know, end of story. You know, how cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. There's a line in your play that I wrote down. <laughs> you know what I? You know what I wrote down when I, if I got too emotional. There's something about the themes of this. Also, it's my birthday today. Oh, happy birthday! Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I wrote down if I got in a jam and I got emotional, I would just say, "Hey, what's it like to be in a Jaws movie?" And we would talk about that until I kind of got it together. <laughs> what's it like to be in a Jaws movie? Which one were you in? The Revenge. Jaws: The Revenge. Yeah. And what's it like to be in a Jaws movie? Oh, it, um, well, it's hilarious because um, I get. Uh, I still get, you know, fan mail from that movie. Like people, people love it for some reason. Yeah. I don't know. It was, it was one of my very first jobs and it was probably the job for which I will always be remembered. Yeah. You can go to conventions and sign stuff and people are into it. I should. I yeah. need the money. Yeah. I once, uh, I once asked Carrie Fisher about one of those conventions. She goes, I came home with a shoebox full of money and remodeled my bathroom. So. <laughs> That, that's not nothing. That's not nothing. Um, so yay for that. All right. You wrote, this is a line in your play and it resonated with me. I think as gay people, you, you are implying, but the line is this, our place in the world is so precarious that we better get all the love and attention we can before they know the truth. I think that idea of our place in the world is something that resonates with me. Um, I think maybe because, and I've put this together recently, I was, I was a late, I was an accident, I think, and I felt it subtly growing up. And so I think that idea of where, where, where am I supposed to go? Right. Where, where is my place is, is a powerful one. Um, but that's something you related to because you figured out that something was up with you and you better soak in all the love you could get before the truth came out and, and everything went away. Is that what you were kind of writing about? I, I, yeah, a hundred percent. I think that, um, and I do, I, I, I talk about how that's sort of what we, what gay people have in common. Like we are all kinds of people, right? We're, you know, we're butch, we're femme, we're like, you know, we're all kinds of people. There's not a whole lot of common denominators within the gay community. But I do think that if you have that sense of being other, yeah, some inside your inside you or if other people are making you feel that sense of being other you're so afraid and you don't know where you fit in you don't know you're like you're the whole earth is shifting under you all the time and if you can grab on to praise attention love all of these things then at least you're moored somehow right and I, and I do, and it gets a little emotional and a little, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say overdramatic, but I do emphasize that point. Like we, you know, I'm grabbing at things, you know, we better get all this love and attention we can before anybody knows the truth about us. And it's sort of like this revelation. Yeah. Um, 
be, because I think that that is true. I think that we are we are lost in a way um, only because we we don't have it, it. It's possible that it may be different now in yeah. some in some worlds. But then, interesting interestingly enough, I was interviewed before I came um, went home to Jamestown, New York, uh, by this man uh, on the local you know, FM station, right? WJTN Jamestown. This guy who he's got to be in his seventies, right? So he's older than me. He said, is it harder now? And I said, Dennis, why would you say it was, his name was Dennis too. Okay. Um, he would say, I, I said, why would you say that? And then it occurred to me that in places like Florida and Cobb County, uh, Georgia, there are, there are, Books that are getting pulled out of schools. Yeah. There are teachers who can literally be fired because – here's a great scenario. Avery, who lives across the street from us, is six years old. If she went to school in Florida and said, hey, my neighbors, Mitchell and Richie, who are my best friends and I love their dog, uh, and the teacher explained to the other classmates that these guys are married, they could – literally be fired for that. So it's mind boggling to think that it, maybe it's not easier. No. Yeah. Or maybe it depends on where you are and all these other variables. I think the word in that line that, that resonates so much for me is precarious is that feeling of like, like I had a roof over my head. I, I, I had a family, like I wasn't that precarious, but it felt precarious for some reason, you know, um, making your way through it. Um, so let's tell people where they can see your show. It's at Highways Performance Space in Los Angeles, October 27th and 28th. And you can learn about it at highwaysperformance.org. Is that, that's the right website, right? I wrote it down. Hopefully at that's highwaysperformance.org, yes. And it's in Santa Monica um, on uh, 18th and Olympic. Yeah, I remember Highways from back in the day. Um, yeah, I been open since the early 90s so that's the cool thing and it's, it was opened as a queer performance space the first one in the country what are you looking forward to about doing the show in la every time i've done the show in a different environment so i did it at my 40th college reunion i did it in my hometown i did it here in atlanta um i've been able to take away sort of different feelings what i'm looking forward to about telling my story in la for the people that were there is filling, let's start filling in the gaps, right? I think that people see you on the foreground, but having them hear the background is, has been so moving to me. It's been so, uh, it's been so exciting in a way because, you know, I, on the surface, everything is fine. And, but back in the day, you know, I had all of these people that are going to be in that audience who were there with me and they could, they could tell the story with me. Right. So I think, I think it'll be an amazing experience. And, and I really wanted to, I don't know if I'll ever do the play again after LA, but um, I really, I really wanted to push that through to do it in, in Los Angeles where so much of it happened. I love it. And you sing a lot in it. I didn't know you were uh, a singer and you're, you're a terrific singer. Yeah. So th- that's the other hilarious thing is that nobody knows this about me. 
even even my husband of 26 years, after the first time he heard the play, um, he was like, I had no idea you could sing like that. That's so cool. I started as a singer. Like, I was in all the high school musicals. I was sure. in you know, the, the choirs and I studied voice uh, the whole time I was in Los Angeles. And honestly, if I had stayed in New York, my whole career would have been different. If I had stayed in New York, I would have been in that sort of musical theater world. Yeah. Probably. You would have been your Curly's, your Billy Lawler's, your guys Correct. and dolls. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Your Harold Hill, maybe. Cash goes a merchandise. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, Mitchell, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for your, for uh, taking the time. I'm excited you're doing the show in LA. I'm going to come and see it. Um, here's my final question. What has it meant to you in your life to have had this project alongside your, your, your other job, your other life? The interesting thing is that I feel like it's reminded me that I'm good at it. You know, that I'm a, I'm a good storyteller. I'm a, I'm a good actor. I'm a good singer. And it's nice that after so many years being away as from a sort of professional show business right. life that I can be, I can step back into it and know that that hour and a half that people are in the theater, I'm giving them good theater. And that's great, you know, to be at my age and go, oh, maybe, you know, maybe there's life after the restaurant. Yeah. That could be, you know, maybe, maybe act three is closer to act one than, than I, because of this show. In yeah. A way. And, you know, it's nice to have After Forever, too. Like, After Forever reminded me that, you know, I'm pretty good at this. Like, yeah. I, I, it wasn't so much of a fluke. Yeah. This has been great. Excellent. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. Thanks, Mitchell. Thank you. Thanks again to Mitchell Anderson. Go see his show, You Better Call Your Mother, at Highways Performance Space in L.A. on October 27th and 28th. I'm going to be there on the 28th, and you can learn about that at highwaysperformance.org. All right, so this happened, as I mentioned at the top, I had a birthday recently, and um, I didn't know what I was going to do for my birthday. I, I feel like people are in charge of their own birthdays. I'm not like, I don't like that thing of like kind of waiting around and nobody did anything. No, it's your job. So I am in love with this theater in Eagle Rock called Vidiots. It opened this year. It's like a revival house where they show older things, and it's just a vibe. It's just really fun. And so I was going to wait and see what they were showing, and if I liked the movie, maybe make that my birthday. Well, it took a, the, the the schedule didn't come out for a while, and I was like watching, watching, watching. Finally, it came out, and it was Pretty in Pink was the movie, the John Hughes written Howard Deutsch directed uh, movie, and uh, I thought, you know what, that's a pretty good one. I saw it not that long ago. I like it, um, and I can do pink cupcakes or cookies or whatever. And <laughs> so I was like, that's the that's the birthday. It was kind of a last minute thing. I invited folks, and it ended up being really fun. I love that place. Uh, we had, you know. There's a place down the street called Senior Fish, and they have a patio, and we all had Mexican food, and then walked down to the theater, and it's just a fun vibe. Very friendly, very community-building. They have a video store attached to it that people actually rent movies from, and um, the movie was really interesting. I think of the John Hughes movies of that era, it, it aged better than most. Like, Sixteen Candles is so wrong, um, but I did notice something kind of about Pretty and Pink. That struck out to me. Um, anytime a guy is alone with a girl, there's like an undercurrent of 
rapiness or uh, a predatory vibe, or there's the pronouncement that there isn't a predatory vibe. Like, I'm not going to try anything. Like, if they're in a room together, the default setting is predatory. It's weird. Like, it's this vibe of, like, you can trust me or you can't trust me. Spader, who looks about 30, James Spader, is super that. And um, just this idea that the default, the norm is dangerous, is predatory. But some scenes, we're not going to be that. And we're, we're going to announce that we're not. It's just weird. But um, the acting is really good. Ducky's there. John Cryer, he's sweet. He's a little stalkery, sure. Um, for a while, I thought he was gay, but I don't know if he is. But Andrew McCarthy and Molly Ringwald are dynamite together. And Andrew McCarthy is dreamy. He has those blue eyes. And I found myself melting a little bit in the theater and so it was fun we had a, a nice group there I had this idea that I was going to make cassette tape cookies because I saw a thing on YouTube where you can make cassettes and they show you how to do it and I ordered all the supplies I found a cookie cutter that's shaped like a cassette and my friend Matt who's very good at cookies he was going to help me and long story short we couldn't make that cookie cutter the dough come out of it it was just not working so I gave up on the cassettes and I'm like everyone's getting circles and I'm going to make them pink and that's it so everyone got pink cookies, but I did not succeed in my cassette dream, which would have taken forever anyway, because I bought these pens and you were going to write mixtape titles. I don't know what I was thinking, but I, the reason that there are TV shows about baking is because it's not easy and it takes a lot of work and it, there's an emotional journey that you go on, uh, which you also need in a TV show. So the cookies were tasty though, and um, they worked. A couple other things about Pretty in Pink. Um, the soundtrack holds up. I came home and I ordered If You Leave uh, for my jukebox on 45, and it should be arriving any day. I'm, I'm excited about that. But the thing that kept me laughing for days afterwards is there's a scene in the movie where Molly Ringwald goes into a boutique to look for a prom dress, and she, it's obviously more expensive than she can afford. It's very pretty woman, and the rich girls are in there, and she's not, you know, doesn't fit in. And there's this the snooty sales girl that comes up and gives her attitude. And after the movie was over, I was talking to my friend Jeffrey Stewart, who's hilarious. And I was like, you know what I like to imagine? A room full of, they're always white, white women that look a certain way, auditioning for the snooty sales girl. And, um, you know, going over their lines and like, you know, memorizing it and getting into their character and then, you know, turning it on. <laughs> and Jeffrey started doing this imitation that I made him do over and over and over again, which is like an actor, you know, an earnest, nice, nice all-American girl actor, like trying to do a good job. And she's like, learning the lines, learning the lines, and go. It's very expensive. And then just turning into a super bitch. <laughs> just imagine a casting uh, hallway full of people playing, uh, auditioning for the snooty sales girl. I don't know why it tickles me so much. But I told Jeffrey later that him doing It's Very Expensive is maybe my favorite birthday gift this year. And then one of my favorite parts of the night was after it was over, a few of us, like a group of five, um, there's a bar down the street in Eagle Rock called Waltz. And it's very fun. They have all these vintage pinball machines. They have Elton John, Captain Fantastic, that pinball machine, which is if I was ever going to own a pinball machine in my house, I think I would want that one. And so it was just a really fun vibe and... Um, two of my friends flew in from other states that I grew up with because one of them, Holly, we went to see Pretty in Pink together the first time in whatever year it was, 1986. She was going to BYU and I was in Arizona 
And I flew up to BYU because I wanted to audition for Disney theme parks. And they didn't have auditions in Arizona. So I flew up there and I remember I auditioned and then we went to this movie. And so I, I let her know that that's what I was doing for my movie. And then she and my friend Deborah, who I also grew up with, were like, let's go, let's go. So they came and we had a blast. It was so thoughtful of them to come and nice to see them. But just this flashback of like, I auditioned for Disney theme parks. I was still in school. I was doing shows, but I thought I had a shot. So I hopped a plane to Utah and stayed with her in her suite, like in her apartment with her roommates. And then we went to Pretty Pink. Anyway, I was like, I think I believed I might be able to get that job or something. I don't know. I didn't. I ended up working on a cruise ship, so which is related. But I don't know. I was like, wow, that was a hopeful move to, uh, to do that. Um, and that's how I always remember that movie. Um, so anyway, overall, it was a really fun birthday. I had a great time that night. And um, I'm a big fan of Vidiots. I plan to go back more and more. And Waltz and uh, Eagle Rock Rocks is the upshot. All right, that's enough for this week. I want to give a shout out to Oscar Rosario Caballero for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for placement music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.